it's time for another edition of Tennis.com's weekly podcast. And here's your host, James Martin. Peter Bodo, where are you today? Welcome to Tennis.com's podcast. And uh, I'm James Martin. We're all asking uh, where our uh, co-host Peter Bodo is. And he uh, called in sick this week. He uh, had a couple sniffles and a sneeze and uh, couldn't make it in. I know that's going to break everyone's heart. But uh, actually, Pete is very sick. And we told uh, Mr. Contagious to stay out of the office for a few days. And uh, in his place, we've got Tom Parada and, as always, Steve Tigner joining me. And, uh, you know, as the year winds down here, guys, today we thought it would be fun as our last podcast of the year until we hit the, the road running next, next year for the Australian Open is to uh, sort of go back and look at the most memorable moments of 2009. Uh, we came up with a ton, but we uh, sort of winnowed it down to four that we thought really sort of capital- captured the, the season and the flashpoints. And the first one, no surprise, was a semifinal slugfest down in Australia between Nadal and Verdasco. It was five and five five hours, five sets, and guys, I was looking back at some of the stats, pretty incredible match as we know, and the points one was really something that struck out, struck me, was looking at it, Nadal won 193 points in that match, and Verdasco won 192 points, one point difference, and that last point, of course, was uh, Verdasco hitting a double fault to give Nadal the match. Um, Tom, what do you remember about this match? Obviously, you were down there. Uh, tell us what you remember about it. My biggest memory of that match is, to me, it's the... Uh it's the epitome of the baseline game being a great game and really not. There's been all this talk for years. Oh, people want to go back to serve and volley and tennis is boring at the baseline game. This was an excitement for five hours, all at the baseline. Winners from every angle, no ball safe, lots of great defense. Um, people just letting the ball fly and not making any mistakes. I think Nadal made around 25 on four errors in the match. And to me, it was sort of a very souped up version of what we had in the 80s with Villander and Lendl just showing that you can play really powerful, interesting, tactical baseline tennis, and it doesn't have to be boring rally. It's To me, it's the farthest I've ever seen the baseline game go in any one match. I mean, do you agree with that, Steve? I, I thought the forehands were unbelievable in that match. Yeah, I think that's true. I think what this match proved is you don't need a contrast in styles to have a to have an all-time match. You need, you need a lot of great shots, and that's it. You need two great athletes playing well, and that's it. And, and I don't think I've ever seen a match where two guys played at that level for that long. And the other thing that I remember about the match is how far they pushed each other. I mean, Verdasco double faulted at the end, but right before that, Nadal actually started to cry on the court right, before yeah. the match was over. I've never seen that. And that, that shows what, how special that match was and how, what an emotional moment it was and sort of what an emotional player Nadal can be and how, he, how far he can push himself in a match. I thought I was telling you, you look at the stills of the shots when they're when the two are shaking hands at the net, and uh, you know the doll was he's emotional as this grueling match, and Pradasco obviously was on the losing end, so he's not going to look happy or anything, but he you sometimes get the sense of like how, how close these guys are, but it was it was an amazing match, and it set the tone for what happened, um, you know, at the French Open. The doll was really on fire all spring, comes into the French Open looking for his uh, you know fifth French Open title in a row, which would would be unbelievable. Um, you know, Borg didn't even do that. And I think what happened there, of course, everyone knows the next moment that we're picking is the upset uh, at the hands of Robin Soderling. And to me, that this match was really as much as much of a flashpoint for what it did in terms of knocking Nadal out and ending his run as who it opened the door for because basically um, this really helped Roger Federer. Let's face it, if it wasn't for this match, uh, Federer might not have completed the career Grand Slam. What do you guys think about that? Well, this is the match that broke the, it sort of broke the season in two. Nadal dominated for the first half, and after this match, it was 
basically Federer. Uh, I, I don't know. If rarely can one can you point to one moment where a season completely turns around. Uh, the, also, just the shock of of the moment. I was playing tennis. I was taping the match and playing tennis while it was going on. I actually, actually couldn't find couldn't figure out <laughs> when it was going to be on. The French Open is is tough for that, but I heard people at my clubs just started to scream. Just started like just started uh, just yelling. I felt like. Something like the president had been assassinated or something, <laughs> but they were yelling that the doll had lost. So that that's the the surprise that it was. Uh, that's you know that's the how much people thought that that couldn't happen, especially to, to Robin Soderling, who had always been a, a a big talent, but a guy who'd never really put anything together. He'd lost one and zero to Nadal a month before, and obviously he's shown that he had a lot more than that. But but for Soderling to knock Nadal out, I don't think anybody even had him. On the radar, somebody who could do that. I, mean, I don't think casual fans, even I mean, like my, I would put my parents, and my mom as a as a as a somewhat casual fan, and she really only had heard his name, but never really even knew what he looked like. And I mean, the, the interesting thing with this match also was that the you know there was bad blood between these two players. Let's face it. I mean, when that 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 infamous Wimbledon match, and you know Nadal telling saying where Soto Link's probably going to go, he double hockey sticks, and uh, you know, so I think there was a lot of motivation on Soto Link's part. He clearly. Um, wanted to win that match and, and and really showed a template of, you know, if you want to beat Nadal, it certainly helps to be pretty big, doesn't it, Tom? Yeah, it does help to be big. He's had trouble with players like that. I think something this match brought out for me, though, is really hit home to me, that I guess, the homogenization of the game. I mean, we've talked for years about how clay court players have done better at Wimbledon and done better on the hard court surfaces. But now I think we've seen and that you can you don't have to be a clay court player necessarily to do really well the French Open. If you have a big enough game that works on a hard court, you can you can now survive there well enough. I think just like, uh, you know, Henman had a year that, that was good. That was a while back. And then, um, oh, his name's escaping me, the Dutch guy, the huge guy. Verkirk. Verkirk, Verkirk right. yes. Had, had a run there where a game that's not built for clay courts at all. Right. But, but but it can be... Sort of goes from different surfaces, clearly. Right. Yeah. Well, I, just look at the difference between Federer and Sampras. That's the proof right there. Federer is sort of the Sampras of the era, yet he's He's won the French. He's been to the final three times. Sampras made one semi. So that's sort of an a indication of how things have changed in the game. And you can look at it for better or worse. Maybe it means everyone's playing the same way, so you can play on every surface. Or maybe it means players are rounding out their games a little bit more and the surfaces are sort of evening out a bit. And it, at least it makes for more competitive matches everywhere, which I like. Yeah, and I also think it's a function of the Americans aren't dominating. The Americans dominated in the 90s, and they play on hard courts. And when they put them on clay, they just look terrible. Now the the Europeans are, are dominating the tour. And surprise, they grow up on clay. They play soccer and as, as, a, as a hobby. Their footwork's great. So I don't think it's any coincidence that the players we're seeing doing well, uh, generally speaking, uh, are the Europeans. Yeah, the one, the one exception to the new clay uh, rule are the Americans. Yeah. American men. They Still just, haven't adjusted. No, and, and the current crop... Blake, Roddick, uh, they're not going to. And before we get to our next uh, moment, which will involve Andy Roddick, I do think it's also look interesting to look at uh, Federer beat Soderling not at the not only at the French final, but at Wimbledon in the fourth round, and I think it was the quarters at U.S. Open. So uh, while Soderling has uh, had Nadal's number, Federer has certainly uh, been thankful to see Soderling on the but other side. But it also shows that Soderling backed up his, his win over Nadal. It wasn't just a, his game ra- was raised permanently by that match. Yeah, he's no Kirk. Which is a good thing. We don't need another for Kirk. He ought to be around a little bit longer. I think so. Well, he, he finished fairly strong. Sammy's at the World Tour Finals, so a good showing for him. And the, fourth, the third moment that we picked uh, 
for American fans will, will appreciate this, hopefully, was Andy Roddick at Wimbledon getting to the final where he met, of course, Roger Federer, loses to Federer for a third straight time in the Wimbledon final. Um, it was the best, obviously, I think everyone agrees, that Andy Roddick has ever played a match. Loses 14-16 in the fifth set. Um, I mean, you know, Andy obviously got hurt toward the end of the year, and I, I think what's going to be interesting going forward for him and, and what you take from this match is you play the best match of your life. He's never going to hit his volleys as good as he did, his ground strokes as good as he did. He still comes up short. He still doesn't win the Wimbledon title. And just the psychic damage that can do to a player, it will be interesting to see how he kind of goes forward into the coming year um, based on that loss. He lost early at the U.S. Open to Isner. Um, but what I mean, what do you guys remember about the match? The thing that struck me, and will always, I'll always remember, is just that Federer hit 50 aces to Roddick's 27, which is like the, I mean, you, you're expecting that to be the reverse at Wimbledon. And, of course, Roger, once again, just denies Roddick. <laughs> The thing I'll remember, I guess, is after the match, in the days afterward, despite the fact that Roddick played the best match of his life and played five amazing sets and actually, I would say, outplayed Federer, yeah. all anybody could talk about was was how bad he looked on that volley that he missed in the second set tiebreak. That's all anybody said, oh, mm-hmm. that volley. <laughs> you know, so Roddick really can't win in that way. But That's unfair, yeah. The other thing I remember is how well he played in the semis to beat Andy Murray, who was the home favorite and had been playing well up to that point. Roddick, you know, he, that was probably the second best match of Roddick's career, and uh, to to take out Murray, a guy who he struggled against, mm-hmm. and and uh, and also the trophy ceremony after after his loss, Roddick was amazingly stoical and not self pitying uh, in his in his reaction to the whole thing. It was it was uh, I don't know I I couldn't have done that. Well, I mean, I think in the face of, you know, I mean, the Federer jacket with the number on there, which is, you know, I know it was a Nike thing, but definitely a bit, a bit of a faux pas and certainly not exactly respectful to, to an opponent. And Roddick did. He was very gracious, Tom. I think Roddick raised his uh, raised esteem for, esteem for Roddick went up for everybody, I think, after that match. Because you've heard a lot of people with you say, well, the guy's just a serve. He's not really a good tennis player. I mean, I think in this match, you can't really, you can't say that anymore. I mean, yeah, the serve is a big part of that match, but he's, he's an incredible He's incredibly competitive. He's been a top five player for year after year. He stays healthy. He works really hard. And frankly, if you look at him up against Federer, talk about bad historical timing, you know, being born at the wrong time. This happens to a lot of athletes. But without Federer, it's very conceivable to see Roddick winning six major titles, three at Wimbledon, two at the U.S. Open, and an Australian Open, too. Well, he also lost to Federer at least in the semis of Wimbledon as well. So, I mean, he can have a bunch. I mean, he's 2-19 and against Federer, which is... Obviously not a good head-to-head. And but a lot of them are very late in tournaments. That's correct. And, I mean, look, no one's, no one's got a – well, there's a couple people have a good record against Federer, but, I mean, it's, it's bad luck. It's just bad luck. And someone who had a lot of good luck, uh, obviously, was Melanie O'Dan at the uh, U.S. Open. Uh, women's tennis, uh, you know, has been pretty atrocious, we can all agree, over the last year. We only really came up with one great moment for them uh, in 2009, which was O'Dan. And – it was just a shot of, of fr- fresh air, really, with her coming in. And, and obviously, the American, that's a great story, and, and it helped at the U.S. Open. All the fans get into her because the first 17-year-old American woman to reach the quarter since Serena back in 99. Um, she had a good Wimbledon coming into that beating Yankovic as well, but no one expected this. I mean, the U.S. needed Udan during the Cold War because she was just knocking off Russian after Russian after Russian. Pavlyuchenkova, Dementieva, Sharapova, and Petrova, the last three in three-set matches, just grinding them out, um, doesn't have a ton of games. She's not the big hitter that a lot of these other girls are. But, I mean, guys, I mean, is she is, what are you looking back at this match? I mean, how surprised are you still that she was able to do this? 
Well, it's surprising because she wasn't touted at least a year before as somebody as a sure shot, which I guess proves that you can't, that you never really know. She also proves how big the the mental aspect of tennis and women's tennis is and, and not getting down on yourself, not being so hard on yourself, which is a, I think is a trait a lot of the, of the women players. Um, and she, you know, she is somebody that, at least for the U.S., you know, the rest of the world may not care, but for the U.S., she's a great thing for, for tennis because the U.S. has always had a dominant um, woman tennis player for the last 40 years, Everett Capriati, the Williamses, and we were wondering if there's going to be another one. Udan may not be it, but at least she is giving people somebody to be interested in again. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, Tom, I just we, we were going to be doing a story actually on Udan in Tennis Magazine, and one of the things she told us um, since the U.S. Open, which I found is telling, is really going to be her challenge, I think, going from this match, is that she was playing in some indoor tournaments after the Open and having to go through and not have the big crowds and having to qualify again because of the ranking system. She, she, did, she didn't get a straight in, and uh, how she struggled with that. I mean, how do you see her mental makeup as far as you know, being able to take that next step and, and really handling the pressure now? I, I think we're going we're gonna to have to learn about that. I think on the court, in a match mentally, she's very good. How she's going to deal with not performing as well that then we're going to see. I mean, I, th- I don't expect too much from her in 2010. The, the things I like about her are her footwork is great, and she's tactically very good. And, you know, you, don't, you see less of that on the women's tour than I think you would like to see. Uh, she reminds me of Justine in a, in a way, in that way. She's not quite as well-rounded or, mm-hmm. as, or as good. But she plays a pretty risky game. She hits the ball very flat, goes for a lot of big angles, and it's easy for her to get a player like that, to me, to get into a rut and start making mistakes and lose confidence. And I think you're going to see some of that. I think she needs time. She's oh, going to yeah. need some time yeah. to develop. And I, I wouldn't say, you know, 2010 she's going to go as far as she did in 2009. But two or three years from now, with, with work and the right attitude, it's, she definitely has enough. Yeah, as of now, I'd say she needs somebody to self-destruct, a good player. That's what she did. She can she can bring that out in people. She can let other people self destruct. But whether she can take over a match, that, that might be might be for the future. That's why I kind of like, I, I know the Hennen comparison. I think is a good one as far as some of the way she plays. But I also see her to Steve's point as almost the Rogers Hodges Vicario uh, type mold as well as because she will try to get players to self destruct. Mm-hmm. Um, although Wozniacki did that to her because Wozniacki is like the ultimate backboard, whereas Zudan obviously is more aggressive. But I do think that's going to be. You know, part of her game plan is, and and that's obviously very doable with some of these 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 women on tour who don't handle you know a three set match very well. Yeah, but it is doable. But I think to win the big one though, or to win a big ma- a major, she's going to have to do more than wait for somebody to self destruct because I, I don't think she's her game isn't built to be super steady like some yeah. other players. That's not going to get her over the line. I think at the end of a major tournament, she could go far that way. But. Right. All right. Well, and also I wanted to bring up one other thing that wasn't on the our four moments of the year, but it was a decade thing that came over the wires yesterday. The AP, so I think you guys have seen announced that Tiger Woods is the uh, athlete of the decade. Now we're not going to get into the the other Tiger stuff. Just looking at the the athlete of the year, Tiger number one, Lance Armstrong number two, Federer number three for the decade. I mean, I looked at that, and I mean for me, I just don't think golfers can be constituted as athletes. I think it's a it's more of closer to a billiard game and a skill game as opposed to a sport. And I, I was kind of pretty angered to see that Federer was taking second fiddle to, to Tiger just on the merits of tennis versus golf. I mean, did you guys have um, that reaction? Yeah, I think Federer should have been the athlete of the decade. You definitely think of tennis as more athletic, but the times that I've seen good golf played up close, it seems a little more athletic than it does 
on television. I would still, yeah, I would still call it a, like I said, I would still call it a game. And but I'm not, I don't have a problem with Tiger Woods winning. He's been he's been an incredible performer. And if you consider golf a sport, you you really have to consider him at least right up there next to Federer. You consider it a sport, Tom? Yeah, I consider it a sport. I think Federer should have won, though. I mean, I think Tiger's winning because, for whatever reason, golf has more status to the AP than, than, than tennis does. But when you have a guy in tennis who, essentially, starting from zero, remember, in this decade, rewrites the entire tennis record book and wins more majors than anybody in about half a decade, right? how can you not give it to that uh, guy? I, I agree. And, I mean, yeah, Tiger was... Uh, you know, is I guess you could they say he's an athlete. He did take the fitness level of golf to a new level as training, which is to say he didn't have the boobs of Mickelson and the butt of Daly. But I mean, you know, I just think I agree with you. I just think Tiger, you know, does comes in second to Federer. But we'll close on that note. Um, a good visual, Mickelson's uh, man boobs. That's a good visual. But um, thanks for listening as always to the Tennis.com podcast. We're going to. Uh, Close it out for the year, and uh, our plans are basically to fire this back up uh, the first week of January. We're going to hit the ground running with Australian Open previews, Australian Open, and uh, we look forward to uh, everyone uh, joining us, as always, with Tom Prada and Steve Tigner. I'm James Martin, and uh, thanks for listening. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. 